excuse me. Well, this was my first official full week as um, a pastor, and I loved being asked this week, so does it feel any different? Um, does it feel special? And um, I was reminded of being asked the same question as we came back from our honeymoon, um, and I responded the same way as I responded then. No, it feels pleasantly ordinary. Um, it feels as if it should be this way. And so, to me, that was the delight of the week. Um, but even more so, it is a delight to be in the book of First Corinthians today. I invite you to turn there with me now. Um, if you have a copy of God's Word, we'll be focusing on chapter 9 this morning. Um, there is part of the text in your insert, but you will find it beneficial to have the whole chapter before you. This is a letter, um, a series of letters written to uh, the church in Corinth by Paul. He writes to them concerning some very serious problems. And we think we have problems in the church today, but Paul was dealing with some very particular, very um, interesting issues. Just to mention a few of them, division in the church, sexual misconduct, wrong practice of marriage and divorce, wrong views of the Lord's Supper, and misunderstanding about the resurrection, just to name a few. And then we read that list and realize that the church today around the world is still facing the same type of issues. These are things that Christians are still dealing with even today. So we might conclude that <clears throat> the book of Corinthians is more a book of dealing with problems. It's a book for going to um, correct or to instruct, um, and not so much a book of encouragement or, or positive teaching. And yet, um, in my life, I have found some of the most encouraging um, verses and sections of Scripture came from these two books. And so we stand here today um, with it before us. But really the reason that we stand with 1 Corinthians 9 before us is because almost 14 years ago to this day, I entered the pulpit. I could barely see over it. I stood with my father's study Bible. I was armed with the footnotes at the bottom of the page. I got up and read 1 Corinthians 9. I read the footnotes attached to that text. I prayed and I sat down 12 minutes later. I want to do justice to this text. I would like to revisit it now. Um, and I believe that there will be a few differences over these last 14 years. First off, I'm afraid it's going to take a little longer than 12 minutes. But more importantly, God has worked in my life and God has showed me and comforted me with this very text time and time and time again. And so I want to put it before you today. I want us to read it together and be encouraged um, and also challenged by God's Word. So let us focus our attention now to God's Word. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, I'll be reading verses 19 to 27. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. 
To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being under the law myself, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessing. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. This ends the reading of God's word. May he place these truths upon all of our hearts and bless the hearing of it. In fact, let us go to him in prayer now and ask for that very thing. Dear Heavenly Father, we do come before you asking, give us your word. Open our hearts, our minds, our ears that we may receive it. Strengthen us, encourage us, challenge us, draw us closer to you by what you have laid out before us. Do this for your glory and for your name's sake. We ask all of these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who died on our behalf, who did this for his people. Amen. To fully understand our text today, we need to go back to the beginning of the chapter. And so we need to spend a moment thinking about Paul's rights and our rights. Paul tells us that he has rights Because at the beginning, it it seems to imply there are people who are challenging Paul's authority to preach. And isn't that often the case when we hear something difficult, something maybe we need to hear, or something that's a little too personal? We tend to go in a couple of different ways. Sometimes we try to soften the blow. He's not really talking about me just everybody else. No, I'm not really like that. You see, he said it like this, and I'm not like that. I'm like something else. Or we take another approach. If we cannot discredit or disqualify the message, we will then go to the messenger. Politicians are very good at this. I cannot disagree with what you're saying, but I can make you look so bad that it will have no effect. And that's what they're trying to do to him here. But despite that, Paul lays out his defense. He gives us his qualifications for why he can stand and preach the message that he preaches. Verse 3, it goes right out and says, This is my defense for those who would examine me. And then he starts going through all of the accusations they have against him. These would seem to relate to his lifestyle. Listen to verses 4 through 7. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? 
Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense, who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Not only that, not only do they challenge his lifestyle, they challenge his authority and work as a minister. Verses 8 and 9, do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? Paul was not teaching new concepts to the people here. He was teaching solid, consistent, biblical practice. He condemns their sexual misconduct because God's word condemns their sexual misconduct. He rebukes their idolatry because the Ten Commandments explicitly say, Thou shalt have no idols. He was not surprising them. He was simply giving them what God had already said. Even worse, some believe um, that they are arguing here, not only should Paul not teach, and not only does he not have any authority, we shouldn't pay him. He's not worth the money. He is not worth the time, the effort. And so he has to go into a defense here that a worker is worthy of his wages. That those who plant have a right to the fruit. That those who farm and those who shepherd have a right to the milk. The soldier gets paid for his task. And he lays all of this out in a very beautiful way. And, and I encourage you to this week read this chapter in its entirety to see this laid out. Paul makes a very, very good defense for his right as a minister. But that kind of brings us up to where we find ourselves today. He spends all of this time, the first 18 verses, defending himself and his rights. And then he begins verse 19 with a denial of the rights that he just defended. Why? Why is that so? I believe that, that Paul wants to get out of the way so that he can make Christ all the more known. Listen to what he says in verse 16. If I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. Necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. This is his focus. This is his center. This is his um, point in which he does what he does. He does not want them to miss that he does have rights, but after he does that, he wants them to look past them. We see this in two ways in our text. First, in verses 19 to 23, Paul tells us why he denies himself. He does have a purpose. He's not doing this for no reason. He says, I have become all things to all people. And then we shift from there to verses 24 to 27. And there Paul argues for perseverance in the Christian life. I want you to follow along with me as we listen to his reasoning and hear the instruction he had for the church back then and today. Paul begins this section by giving an interesting concept. He spent so much time talking about his rights, that you may be left surprised. Why, Paul? Why waste time? Why spend the effort? He says in verses 1 and 2, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus? Are you not my workmanship? If to others I'm not, at least I am to you. 
For to you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. From that, too, I became all things to all people. Paul has at the front of his mind sharing the gospel. And as we walk through this, don't miss that that key concept. He doesn't become all things to all people just to enjoy their culture, to look like them, to model their image, or to gain anything other than an audience. And let's think about this in two lights. I really believe that um, this is important. So let's look at negatively what he's not doing here. And then we'll look at positively what he is. What is he not doing? Paul is not becoming a sinner to reach sinners. Please don't hear this in this text. He's talking about people groups. He is not murdering to be able to better reach and speak to murderers. He is not getting a divorce to be able to better speak to divorcees. He is not committing adultery to be able to better talk to adulterers. He becomes all things to share the gospel. And this has huge implication for us today. I cannot tell you how many times I've heard the following arguments. I am far too old to work with youth. I cannot possibly lead a men's Bible study, for I am far too young and they will know more than I do. This misconception has kept many able-bodied people from serving the Lord You do not have to be exactly like the ones that you serve. I really wish that we would have all of you sign up for our mission trips in the summer. I would love to have the problem that we have no idea how to house you. You have great opportunities. Listen to the reports. Talk to those who have been. Ask them how it has affected their lives. But what we do here a lot of times, is use the negative that Paul is not using. We'll sometimes say something like this. Well, I don't know the language. I can't go anywhere. I can't speak the language. I won't be effective. I'm too old for this. I'm not a skilled worker. I love that one. I'll let you in on a little secret. I'm not a skilled worker. And I led one of the trips last year. I'm so thankful for those that are skilled workers, and we would love to have more of you come on the trip this summer. But I am very good at picking up a hammer and handing it to somebody else. I can do that well. I can grab a board. I can direct people. I'm a really good director. I can play with children. But beyond all of that, I can share the love that God has given and shown to me to others. You do not have to become a carpenter and then go on a trip like this. You do not have to learn the art of youth ministry before you go serve at a VBS. That's not how it works. That's not what Paul is saying here. Paul says go. God says go and then I will equip you for the task at hand. Paul tells Timothy, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Because at the end of the day, what are you teaching? What are you doing? You're teaching the Bible. You're sharing God's truth. The Bible is our standard. 
It does not change. It's God's word to his people. This is why Paul tells Timothy, set an example in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. This can be done by anyone. This is why you can hire a single minister and they can preach on marriage. This is why old and young can sign up for vacation Bible school. The focus and center is on the Bible, not the people. It's important to make this clarification on the front end. I mean, let's be honest. Paul is a Jew. He cannot become uncircumcised to relate to the Gentiles. It's not mechanically possible. That's not what's at stake here. That's not what he's doing. So what is he doing? What is going on? He says, to the Jew, I became like a Jew. To the Gentiles, those under the law, I became like one under the law. To those outside, I became as one outside. To the weak, I became weak. What Paul is doing isn't some unbiblical practice of sinning the same way that they are. What he is doing is finding ways to love and care for them, relating to them. He's engaging in the customs of the people so that he can have an audience with them. Not in a sinful way, but a way out of kindness. While in seminary, I had a Chinese roommate, um, one of my dearest friends in the Lord. He invited his mother to come stay with us. And he invited her to come for six months. I didn't know that when I agreed. She had only been to America twice. She spoke no English. Um, She was in her 70s and was very steeped in Chinese culture. She was not a Christian. She didn't understand her son's decision to become a Christian, to go to seminary, to basically give up his life for the Bible. And yet she came. My brother and I um, spent six months with her, never speaking a word between the two of us. And yet, we made a decision as a group. We would love this woman with so much love that she would be confused. That was our goal. Our goal really was to love her so much that she was left asking why. And it worked at great cost. I first learned to take my shoes off at the door. Um, as that is appropriate um, in culture. I then learned that um, most older um, Chinese ladies, like Bourne's mother, had never heard of an air conditioner before. In fact, the sound of one scared her so bad that after a week, we went and bought as many fans as we could, put them in our room, and turned the air off in Mississippi in July. I cannot tell you some of the things that I ate, nor do I want to know, but I ate them. Our backyard back then um, was very small, and and by the time she left, it had become a garden or a jungle, if you will, because she loved to garden. We suffered for the sake of our sister. And do you know what? It worked. One day, she came to her son And said, why do they act that way? Why do they treat me so kindly? They do not know me. They do not owe me anything. They're in their own home. And yet they're doing things that they do not have to do for me. And he was able to share the gospel with his mother. Something he had been praying for for years. I don't tell you that so that you think highly of me. I tell you that because... 
for the sake of the cross, sometimes we're going to have to give up cultural rights. We're going to have to give up things that we have rights to so that we may reach others. When Paul was around the Jews, he wasn't eating pork or shellfish. When he was with the Gentiles, he was doing things that the Jews may declare unclean. Paul was willing to give up comforts and norms in order that they may see his love and be more inclined to hear the gospel with which he preached. Because to Paul, this is the end goal. He does not just want to be friends with his people. Yes, he cared about their friendship, but more importantly, he wanted an audience. He wanted to provide opportunity. He repeatedly says in our text, I do these things that I might win more of them. He's gospel focused in all of his actions, in all of his behavior. And then he turns away from the non-Christians. He spends a great portion of his time saying, I became all things to all people that I might win them. And then he looks to the church. Remember that this is a letter to the church, to the Christians. Christians who are facing grave spiritual issues. He wants to not only correct the wrong teaching and, and encourage the unbelievers, but he also wants to promote right teaching amongst the believers. Paul gives the church in Corinth and us as an extension a strong encouragement. He tells us, run that you may obtain the prize. Give your attention to verses 24 to 27 to see what he means by this. And he makes his point, he states his case by giving us several analogies. He actually gives four. He knows many things about the Corinthian church, but he's focused on two in particular. One. They need encouragement. They need encouragement. They are committing sins that are so great that he must go back to the simple, basic foundation of Christianity and the Christian life. They need to be encouraged to pursue Christ and to believe the gospel truth. This may sound overly simplistic, and yet it can be one of the most profound things that God does for us in his word when he lays out the simple, basic gospel truth. Another thing that he knows about the Corinthian church is that these analogies are ones that they would be very familiar with. Paul meets them where they are. He talks to them with something that they know. You see, the Roman world really ruled this era and some of the best things they were known for, combat, entertainment. In fact, they were so good at these that they would often combine the two. This is the context within the Corinthian churches operating. So let us look at these examples to see what he is illustrating to the church, both then and now. And Paul begins his analogies with one of a runner. He reminds us that in a race, only one runner can be declared the winner. There can only be one who is fastest. Only one runner will win. And so we, not, we should not only just be satisfied to run, we should also run as one who will win. Paul is having us imagine that only one gets the prize, and we must train as if it will be us. Not only should we do that, but we must finish. You cannot win the race that you stop in. You will be disqualified. 
You know, I'm reminded of this concept during uh, summer camp last year. My first opportunity to be with our youth at camp, and it was a delightful experience. Not without its challenges, though. One night, um, I was talking to the youth, and I was saying, you know what, Um, I need to keep up my running while we're here. Who'd be interested in a run in the morning? Thinking that no one would respond. It was 11 at night, and we had to get up at 6. Like, oh, we'll be there. I was like, okay, I'll see it when I believe it. Or I'll believe it when I see it. And so I got up at 6. I walked outside, and to my dismay, there was a group of guys standing there ready. I was told we're going to do a three-mile loop. And one of the guys said, and I think we'll go at a leisurely six-and-a-half-minute pace. Now, you need to know something about me. I like to run, but I am not a runner. Some of you know that distinction. Some of you are very familiar with that concept I personally am at about a nine to nine and a half minute pace kind of guy. I like to enjoy runs or a fast jog as I call it or as others as they see me call it. When I'm properly conditioned I can shave that down to about 750, 815. That's that's really my pace and has been my whole life. My strength comes in distance. I can keep that pace. Once I get going, I'm, I'm consistent. I can do that mile after mile after mile. That's where God has blessed me in the running realm. However, not once in my entire life have I ever run any distance that started with six in the minute column. But I was stuck. So off I went. I made it half a mile. At their pace, I started slowing down. And I got further and further behind. And yet, there was this one boy who was leading the group. Let's call him Humility. He would run back and he would check on me. Mr. Suber, are you okay? I'm fine. I'll keep up. Keep on going. And he would run back to the front and say, okay, here's where we're turning. Here's where we're going next. This is the next pace. Let's keep it up. Let's pick it up a little bit. We can do this. And then he would run back. Mr. Suber, you can walk if you want to. I'm okay, I'm okay. And then he would run back to the front. And he did this nonstop. He he had to have come back seven or eight times and was still the first to finish. And yet I did as well. It is only the runners who finish who are eligible for the prize. Paul is telling the Corinthians that they must pursue Christ as if only they may obtain him. They must seek Him as if He is the most important thing in their lives. Some of you could deal with a better dose of my stubbornness. The pursuit, the I will finish. Because if we're honest today, we've been plagued by this concept of a consolation prize. There's trophies for everyone just for showing up. Everybody's a winner. This has become so common, it's plagued our church. There are a lot of people who show up and say, God will reward me because I was here. It may not be very good for me in the afterlife, but it can't be as bad as it should be. God's just too loving. He will not punish His people. He just wants us to do our best. He will forgive us anyway. Excuse me. This is the mindset that the Corinthians had, and many of us do as well, which is in stark contrast to what Paul just said. 
only one winner wins the prize. Run that you may obtain it. The beauty is that more than one will win the prize. More than one will be in heaven. There will not be a single person in heaven. There will be many. God will accept all of his children. He will not turn them away. But he does remind them and us, run. Don't walk. Don't leisurely stroll. Run that you may obtain it. He then broadens his analogies as if that didn't relate to the people. He shifts to one of an athlete, a little broader, a little more general. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Self-control is necessary for an athlete. If you eat poorly, train poorly, and don't devote the time, you will perform poorly. Paul knew that the Corinthians could look to the Romans in this regard. They were masters at the games and at warfare. They trained constantly to be the very best. They would deny themselves in certain areas so they could excel in others. This also goes back to what we were previously saying. Paul denies himself with previous or with certain groups. He exhibits self-control so that he can be focused on a single goal, a single task. And that goal, sharing the gospel with others. And the prize is not something temporary. It's not something that wastes away, that collects dust on our shelf. The prize is God himself. He pursues God and looks forward to being in his presence. He seeks God and also seeks to bring as many with him as possible. He is very disciplined in his task. And if that analogy has not been pushed far enough, he shifts yet again, this time to the boxer. Paul tells them, so I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. Here, he is emphasizing once again, there must be purpose in our pursuit. We must be working toward a goal. A boxer that boxes the air will not accomplish anything other than tiring himself out. This analogy can also speak to the boxer who misses his target. A miss in boxing does not count as points. It wastes time, effort, energy, and it actually can detract from your score. It is only the boxer who hits his mark that receives a point, a score. A Christian that does not have the goal of pursuing Christ, a Christian who does not aim towards that, will never hit that mark. We will become stagnant and lazy We will become lethargic. We will slow down. A Christian must pursue God with the mindset of knowing Him. We train with a purpose. We're not fighting blind. Our enemy is very keen. He is aware of our weaknesses and target them with precision. We must prepare ourselves for the fight at hand. God says we engage in spiritual warfare daily. We must not become so indifferent to God's word that we forget to train. Daily, reading God's word, praying, fellowshipping with one another, attending church, partaking of the sacraments. These things train us for the fight ahead. And he finally gets to his last analogy, which really encompasses all of them. Discipline the body. Paul is so concerned with reaching others with the gospel, he's very cautious to make sure he is not disqualified. He says, I discipline my body and keep it under control, 
lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul knows that there are people who seek to invalidate his ministry, who seek to render him useless, who seek to say, no, Paul is wrong. We talked about it very briefly at the beginning. And so, to combat that, he pursues God with such discipline that there is little to nothing the world can say against him. Now, he's not saying he's sinless here. He's not saying that he is perfect. But what he is saying is he seeks to grow in his love and knowledge of God so much that it minimizes his sinful behavior. He is very intentional. Just like an athlete must train with a single focus in mind. You don't get many people who practice or play or participate in multiple sports past high school. At that level, you must be particularly focused. You must be singularly minded. It's why most pitchers have low batting averages. To highlight one aspect is to cost you the others. Some of the most convicting sermons I have ever heard in my life have come from myself. I don't say that to brag on me, but I say that because there's a lot of times that I'm preaching and as I'm speaking the words, God and the Spirit works in my heart and at the same moment you hear it, I hear it too and I go, oh, I've got to do that. I've got to believe that. Oh, if you could have heard the prayers I've prayed on the car ride home, asking God to help me do the very thing that I just told you to do. It's hard sometimes, because what are you going to do? Discredit yourself? Well, the minister really didn't know what he was saying today. It really doesn't apply to me. How can you do that when you're the one speaking it? You cannot treat God's word that way. You must check yourself against what God says in his word, and none of us are outside of that. Chief amongst it ourselves as ministers. You know... An athlete can be screened for drugs at any time. Any time there can be a random screening, as they like to call it. Because they're under contract. They're under oath. What would it look like for us as Christians? All right, it's time for your random spirituality check. Walk into your work on Tuesday after that staff meeting. Okay, it's time for your checkup. Let's pull out the fruit of the Spirit and see how you're doing today. What would that reveal about your life? What would that reveal about your heart, about your behavior? We must pursue God with a singular focus. And so, what is the takeaway? What can we learn from Paul's correction and encouragement to the Corinthians? I think there's a few things. One, we must be convicted of our sinfulness. Sin has consequences Paul is writing to a church, a church that he had a hand in starting, and a a church that has fallen into great sin. May we never grow so comfortable in our sin that we fail to let God's Word speak to us. One of my favorite vows of church membership, I believe it's vow number four, do you promise to submit to the discipline of this church and its leaders? I love that one because people have no idea what they're agreeing to. And yet, to me, it's one of the best vows. Because I'll be honest, if you catch me or my family, if you see one of us engaging in sinful practice and sinful behavior, stop us. Call me out. Go to my elders. Bring me under discipline. That's what you're here for. 
You've made a promise to do that at least twice. Once under my membership and secondly under my ordination. The elders have taken a vow before you to do that. And those of you who are members, I promise the same thing for you. And I don't mean that in a threatening way. I mean that in the most loving way I can say that. I promise to reveal your sinfulness to you so that you may not be disqualified from the gospel. And I pray that you would do the same for me. May we never grow complacent in our sin. Also, I think it's important to see that we must reach all people. And to do so, sometimes we have to deny ourselves some comfort. Now, none of us should go against what is biblically true. I'm not asking you to do what the Bible doesn't say. But, for some of us, it may mean sitting somewhere different on Sunday, despite the fact that your family bought that pew. It's got your name under it somewhere, and you've been sitting there since the church has been here. Maybe for some of you, it means once every other month, serving in the nursery and giving up a sermon. Maybe for some of you, it means working for vacation Bible school, even if you don't particularly joy young children. Maybe it means sitting by a stranger on Sunday, knowing that the passing of the peace is coming and you're going to have to say hi to them, and that's the most stressful thing you can ever imagine. Sometimes we have to let go of a little comfort to share, promote, and glorify the gospel. Lastly, I think that this text should leave us with a great zeal for God's word. Paul encourages us with multiple analogies. Run to Christ. Pursue him with all of your energy. Seek him as if your very life depended upon it. And you will be blessed because it will give you opportunity to share that word with others. You know, in my 11th grade doctrine class, we were studying the topic of sanctification as we walked through the confession And one of the ways we grow in sanctification, I had never really thought about this, um, and this year it, it really convicted me personally. It says something like this, as we spend our life, the more selfless we become, the less selfish, or the more selfless we become, the less selfish we are. The more we focus on others, the more we deny ourselves, the more we serve, the more we give, the more we do, the more we volunteer, the more we help, the less time you have left to think about yourself. And the less time you have to think about yourself, the less opportunity to be sinful you have. The more you think about others, the less sinful you will become. Thus sanctification I believe Paul is echoing that here. I believe Paul is really interested in telling the church, you must pursue Christ. Deny yourself. Lay down your life. Give it up for the sake of others. I became all things to all people that I might win some of them. Run toward Christ. Seek him as if you are training and you are the only one who can find him. And in doing so, you will become more focused on others. That is the beauty of God's word. The more we love God, the more we will love others, thus fulfilling the greatest commandment. I pray this for you. I pray that you would do this with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let us pray. 
Dear Heavenly Father, what heavy words you have given us this morning. What a great challenge to lay down our life, to deny ourselves, to say, yes, I have rights, but to give them up for the sake of others, just as Paul gave up his rights so that he may win more. Lord, encourage us with your word. Strengthen us with your word, but also correct and rebuke us with your word. May we be willing to say, God, you are right. I am not pursuing you. I am not running as if I want to win. I am just walking along the path hoping to get there eventually. Challenge us, strengthen us, encourage us to run to you. Thank you for your word to us today, Lord. I pray all of these things and pray this for all of these people in your name, the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.